0: what's a feud well where was you raised don't you know what a feud is never heard of it before tell me about it well Buck says a feud is this way a man has a quarrel with another man and he kills him then the other man's brother kills him and then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another and then the cousins chip in and by and by everybody's killed off and there ain't no more feud it's kind of slow, and it takes a long time.
1: This is Jim Fallon, director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University. And I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. Today's episode is a little different from our usual fare, because my guest, Matt Sabewalt, has his own podcast called The American Vandal. And though we're recording this podcast on my home court, that is, a recording studio at Ohio State, Matt will also send it out as an episode of his podcast, The American Vandal, so it's a crossover. We'll both follow and tweak the usual format for the Project Narrative podcast. We'll begin by reading a short narrative chosen by the guest, and Matt has selected chapter 18 of Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and then we'll discuss it. But rather than Matt reading the whole chapter, he'll read the first half, and I'll read the second half. During the discussion, I'll start in the role of host and ask Matt some questions, and then we'll switch roles. The bridge between the two halves of the discussion will be a short conversation about the kinds of close reading we each find ourselves drawn to.
0: Since you're listening to this on the American Vandal feed, and thus you probably already know who I am, I'm going to take this opportunity to introduce Jim Phelan who is the Distinguished University Professor of English at Ohio State and the Director of Project Narrative, a cluster of faculty and students, as well as events and other programming, including podcasts, focused on narrative theory. He is the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of over a dozen books, including an edition of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn from Bedford. And for more than 30 years, he has been the editor of the journal Narrative. I want to thank Jim, Kayla Goldblatt, and the rest of Project Narrative for hosting me, for the Twainiacs in the audience. If you already consider yourself intimately familiar with chapter 18, you can skip to exactly minute 30 to hear the beginning of our discussion.
1: Matt, is there anything you'd like our listeners to know about the context of chapter 18 of Huck Finn or anything you'd particularly like them to pay attention to as we read?
0: I think we'll cover some of the contexts in our conversation afterward, but the one piece that's maybe important here is that Jim and Huck have just been dropped off the raft by a, a collision with a steamboat and, and separated for the first time since about chapter 10 of the novel and so we're, we're going to spend most of this chapter with huck and then have you know have a reappearance of jim later on yeah okay
1: great <laughs> all right so here's matt say uh, reading the first half of chapter 18 of adventures of huckleberry finn
0: Colonel Grangerford was a gentleman, you see. He was a gentleman all over, and so was his family. He was well-born, as the saying is, and that's worth as much to a man as it is to a horse. So the widow Douglas said, and nobody ever denied that he was of the first aristocracy of our town. And Pap, he always said it too, though he weren't no more quality than a mudcat himself. Colonel Grangerford was very tall. very slim and had a darkish paley complexion not a sign of red in it anywheres he was clean shaved every morning all over his thin face and he had the thinnest kind of lips and the thinnest kind of nostrils and a high nose and heavy eyebrows and the blackest kind of eyes sunk so deep back that they seemed like they was looking out of caverns at you his forehead was high and his hair was black and straight and hung to his shoulders. His hands was long and thin, and every day of his life he put on a clean shirt and a full suit from head to foot, made out of linen so white it hurt your eyes to look at it. And on Sundays he wore a blue tailcoat with brass buttons on it. He carried a mahogany cane with a silver head to it. There weren't no frivolousness about him, not a bit, and he weren't ever loud. He was as kind as he could be. You could feel that, you know, and so you had confidence. Sometimes he smiled and it was good to see, but when he straightened himself up like a Liberty pole and the lightning began to flicker out from under his eyebrows, you wanted to climb a tree first and find out what the matter was afterwards. He didn't ever have to tell anybody to mind their manners. Everybody was always good-mannered where he was. Everybody loved to have him around too. He was sunshine most always. I mean, he made it seem like good weather. When he turned into a cloud bank, it was awful dark for half a minute. And that was enough. There wouldn't nothing go wrong again for a week. When him and the old lady come down in the morning, all the family got up out of their chairs and give them good day, and then set down again till they had set down. Then Tom and Bob went to the sideboard where the decanters was and mixed a glass of bitters and handed it to him. And he held it in his hand and waited till Tom's and Bob's was mixed. And then they bowed and said, our duty to you, sir and madam. And they bowed the least bit in the world and said, thank you. And so they drank all three and Bob and Tom poured a spoonful of water on the sugar and the mite of whiskey or apple brandy in the bottom of their tumblers and gave it to me and Buck. And we drank to the old people, too. Bob was the oldest and Tom next, tall, beautiful men with very broad shoulders and brown faces and long black hair and black eyes. They dressed in white linen from head to foot like the old gentleman and wore broad Panama hats. Then there was Miss Charlotte. She was 25 and tall and proud and grand, but as good as she could be, and she weren't stirred up. But when she was, she had a look that would make you wilt in your tracks like her father. She was beautiful, and so was her sister, Miss Sophia, but it was a different kind. She was gentle and sweet like a dove, and she was only 20. Each person in the family had their own slave to wait on them, Buck too. My slave had a monstrous easy time, because I weren't used to having anybody do anything for me, but Bucks was on the jump most of the time. This was all there was of the family now, but there used to be more. Three sons, they got killed, and Emmeline that died. The old gentleman owned a lot of farms and over a hundred slaves. Sometimes a stack of people would come there horseback from 10 or 15 mile around and stay five or six days and have such junketings round about and on the river and dances and picnics in the woods, daytimes, and balls in the house, night times. These people was mostly kinfolks of the family Men brought their guns with them. It was a handsome lot of quality, I tell you. There was another clan of aristocracy around there, five or six families, most of them named Shepherdson. They was as high-toned and well-born and rich and grand as the tribe of Grangerfords. The Shepherdsons and the Grangerfords used the same steamboat landing, which was about two mile above our house. So sometimes, when I went up there with a lot of our folks, I used to see a lot of the Shepherdsons there, on their fine horses. One day, Buck and me was away in the woods hunting and heard a horse coming. We was crossing the road, and Buck says, Quick, jump for the woods! We done it, and then peeped down the woods through the leaves. Pretty soon, a splendid young man came galloping down the road, setting his horse easy and looking like a soldier. He had his gun across his pommel. I had seen him before. It was young Harney Shepherdson. I heard Buck's gun go off at my ear, and Harney's hat tumbled off from his head. He grabbed his gun and rode straight to the place where we was hid, but we didn't wait. We started through the woods on a run. The woods weren't thick, so as I looked over my shoulder to dodge a bullet, twice I seen Harney cover Buck with his gun, and then he rode away the way he come, to get his hat, I reckon, but I couldn't see. We never stopped running till we got home. The old gentleman's eyes blazed for a minute. It pleasure, mainly, I judged. And then his fate's sort of smoothed down, and he says, kind of gentle. I don't like that shooting from behind a bush. Why didn't you step into the road, my boy? The Shepherdsons don't, father. They always take advantage. Miss Charlotte, she held her head up like a queen while Buck was telling his tale, and her nostrils spread and her eyes snapped. The two young men looked dark but never said nothing. Miss Sophia, she turned pale, but the color come back when she found out the man weren't hurt. Soon as I could get Buck down by the corn cribs under the trees by ourselves, I says, Did you want to kill him, Buck? Well, I bet I did. What did he do to you? Oh, him? He never done nothing to me. Well, then, what do you want to kill him for? Why, nothing. Only it's on account of the feud. What's a feud? Why, where was you raised? Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before. Tell me about it. Well, Buck says, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man, and he kills him. Then the other man's brother kills him, and then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another, and then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everybody's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But It's kind of slow and it takes a long time has this one been going on long buck well i should reckon it started 30 year ago or somewhere along there there was trouble about something and a lawsuit to settle it and then the suit went against one of the men so he up and shot the man that won the suit which he would naturally do of course anybody would what was the trouble about buck land i reckon maybe i don't really know Well, who done the shooting? Was it a Grangerford or a Shepherdson? Laws, how do I know? It was so long ago. Does anybody know? Oh, yes, Pa knows, I reckon. And some of the other old folks. But they don't know now what the row was about in the first place. Has there been many killed, Buck? Oh, yes. Right smart chance of funerals. But they don't always kill. Pa's got a few buckshot in him. But he don't mind it, because he don't weigh much anymore. Bob's been carved up with some Bowie. Tom's been hurt once or twice. Has anybody been killed this year, Buck? Oh yes, we got one and they got one. About three months ago, my cousin Bud, 14-year-old, was riding through the woods, the other side of the river, didn't have no weapon with him, which was blame foolishness. And in a lonesome place, he hears a horse a-coming behind him and sees old Baldy Shepherdson a-linking after him with his gun in his hand and his white hair a-flying in the wind. Instead of jumping off and taking to the brush, Bud allowed himself he could outrun him. So they had it nip and tuck for five mile or more. Old man a gaining all the time, so at last Bud seen it weren't any use. So he stopped and faced around so he could have the bullet holes in his front. You know? And the old man, he rode up and shot him down. But he didn't get much chance to enjoy his luck, for inside a week our folks laid him out. I reckon that old man was a coward, Buck. I reckon he war not a coward, not a blame sight. There ain't a coward among them shepherdsons, not a one. There ain't no cowards among the Grangerfords either. Well, that old man kept his end of the fight one day for half an hour against three Grangerfords and come out winner. They was all a horseback. He lit off on his horse and got behind a little woodpile, kept his horse before him to stop the bullets. But the Grangerfords stayed on their horses and capered around the old man and peppered away at him and he peppered away at them. Him and his horse both went off pretty leaky and crippled, but the Grangerfords had to be fetched home. One of them was dead, and the other died the next day. No, sir, if a body's out hunting for cowards, you don't want to fool away any time among the Shepherdsons, because they don't breed any of that kind. Next Sunday, we all went to church. About three mile, everybody a horseback. The men took their guns along, and so did Buck, and kept them between their knees and stood them handy against the wall. Shepherdsons done the same. It was pretty ornery preaching, all about brotherly love and such-like tiresomeness. But everybody said it was a good sermon, and they all talked it over going home and had a powerful lot to say about faith and good works and free grace and pre-foreordination and I don't know what all, that it seemed to me to be one of the roughest Sundays I had run across yet. About an hour after dinner, everybody was dozing around, some in their chairs and some in their rooms, and it got pretty dull. Buck and a dog was stretched out on the grass in the sun, sound asleep, and I went up to our room and judged I would take a nap myself. I found that sweet Miss Sophia standing at her door, which was next to ours, and she took me in her room and shut the door very soft and asked me if I liked her, and I said I did. And she asked me if I would do something for her and not tell anybody, and I said I would. Then she said she'd forgotten her testament and left it in the seat at church between two other books. And would I slip out quiet and go there and fetch it to her, and not say nothing to nobody? And I said I would. So I slid out and slipped off up the road. There weren't anybody at the church, except maybe a hog or two, for there weren't any lock on the door, and the hogs likes a punching floor in the summertime because it's cool. If you notice, most folks don't go to church only when they've got to. But a hog is different. Says I to myself, something's up. It ain't natural for a girl to be in such a sweat about a testament. So I give it a shake and out drops a little piece of paper with half past two wrote on it with a pencil. I ransacked it, but couldn't find anything else. I couldn't make anything out of it. So I put the paper back in the book again. And when I got home and upstairs, there was Miss Sophia in her door waiting for me. She pulled me in, shut the door and she looked at the testament till she found the paper. And as soon as she read it, she looked glad. And before a body could think, she grabbed me and gave me a squeeze and said I was the best boy in the world and not to tell anybody. She was mighty red in the face for a minute, and her eyes lighted up, and it made her powerful pretty. I was a good deal astonished. But when I got my breath, I asked her what the paper was about, and she asked me if I had read it, and I said no. And she asked me if I could read writing, and I told her no, only coarse hand. And then she said the paper weren't anything but a bookmark to keep her place. And I might go out and play now.
1: I went off down to the river, studying over this thing. And pretty soon I noticed that my slave was following along behind. When we was out of sight of the house, he looked back and around a second, and then comes a running and says, Mars George, if you'll come down into the swamp, I'll show you a whole stack of water moccasins. Thinks I. "'That's mighty curious. He said that yesterday. "'He ought to know a body don't love water moccasins enough "'to go around hunting for them. "'What is he up to, anyway?' "'So I says, "'All right, trot ahead." "'I followed a half a mile, and he struck out over the swamp "'and waded ankle-deep as much as another half-mile. "'We come to a little flat piece of land which was dry "'and very thick with trees and bushes and vines, and he says,' "'You shove right in there just a few steps, Mars George. "'That's where they is. "'I see em before. "'I don't care to see em no more.' "'Then he slapped right along and went away, "'and pretty soon the trees hit him. "'I poked into the place a ways "'and come to a little open patch as big as a bedroom, "'all hung around with vines, "'and found a man laying there asleep. "'And by jings, it was my old Jim!' I waked him up and I reckoned it was going to be a grand surprise to him to see me again, but it war not He nearly cried he was so glad, but he war not surprised. Said he swum along behind me that night and heard me yell every time, but that's an answer because he didn't want anybody to pick him up and take him into slavery again, says he. I got hurt a little and couldn't swim fast. So I was a considerable ways behind you, toward the last. When you landed, I reckoned I could catch up with you on the land without having to shout at you. But when I see that house, I begin to go slow. I was off too far to hear what they say to you. I was afraid of the dogs. But when it was all quiet again, I know you uses in the house. So I struck out for the woods to wait for day. Early in the morning, some of the slaves come along, going to the fields and they took me and showed me this place, where the dogs can't track me on account of the water, and they brings me truck to eat every night and tells me how you were getting along. Why didn't you tell my Jack to fetch me here sooner, Jim? Well, it not no use to disturb you, Huck, till we could do something. But we's all right now. I better buy pots and pans and vittles as I got a chance, And I patched up the raft nights when... What raft, Jim? Our old raft. You mean to say our old raft wasn't smashed all the flinders? No, she weren't. She was tore up a good deal. One end of her was, but there weren't no great harm done, only our traps was most all lost. If we hadn't dived so deep and swum so far underwater, and the night hadn't been so dark, and we weren't so scared and been such pumpkin heads, as the saying is, we'd a seed the raft. But it's just as well we didn't, because now she's all fixed up again, most as good as new, and we's got a new lot of stuff in the place of what was lost. Why, how did you, you get hold of the raft again, Jim? Did you catch her? How are I going to catch her and I out in the woods? No, some of the slaves found her catched on a snag along here in the bend. And they hit her in a creek amongst the willows. And they was so much drawn about which of them she belonged to the most that I come to hear about it pretty soon. So I ups and settles the trouble by telling them she don't belong to none of them but to you and me. And I asked if they're going to grab a young white gentleman's property and go get a hiding for it. Then I give them ten cents apiece. And they is mighty well satisfied and wish the moe would come along and make him rich again. Day's mighty good to me, these slaves is, and whatever I want them to do for me, I don't have to ask them twice, honey. That Jack's a good slave and pooty smart. Yes, he is. He ain't ever told me you was here, told me to come, and he'd show me a lot of water moccasins. If anything happens, he ain't mixed up in it. He can say he never seen us together. And it'll be the truth. I don't want to talk much about the next day. I reckon I'll cut it pretty short. I waked up about dawn and was a-going to turn over and go to sleep again when I noticed how still it was. Didn't seem to be anybody stirring. That were unusual. Next, I noticed that Buck was up and gone. Well, I gets up a wonderin' and goes downstairs. Nobody around. Everything as still as a mouse. Just the same outside. Thinks I, what does it mean? Down by the woodpile, I comes across my Jack and says, What's it all about? says he, Don't you know, Marsh George? No, says I, I don't. Well, then, Miss Sophia's run off. Deed she has. She run off in the night, sometime, nobody don't know just when. Run off to get married to that young Harney Shepherdson, you know. Least way, so they speck. The family found it out about half an hour ago, maybe a little more. And I tell you, they were not no time lost. Such another hurrying up guns and horses you never see. The women folks has gone for to stir up the relations, and old more Saul and the boys tucked the guns and rode up the river road for to try to catch that young man and kill him for he can get across the river with Miss Sophia. I reckon they's going to be a mighty rough times. Buck went off without waking me up. Well, I reckon he did. They weren't going to mix you up in it. Mars Buck, he loaded up his gun and loud he's going to fetch home a shepherdson or bust. Well, there'll be plenty of them there, I reckon. And you bet you he'll fetch one if he gets a chance. I took up the river road as hard as I could. By and by, I began to hear guns a good ways off. When I came inside of the log store and the woodpile where the steamboats lands... I worked along under the trees and brushed till I got to a good place, and then I clumb up into the forks of a cottonwood that was out of reach and watched. There was a wood rank four feet high, a little ways in front of the tree, and first I was going to hide behind that, but maybe it was luckier I didn't. There was four or five men cavorting around on their horses in the open place before the log store, cussing and yelling, and trying to get at a couple of young chaps that was behind the wood rank alongside of the steamboat landing, but they couldn't come it. Every time one of them showed himself on the riverside of the woodpile, he got shot at. The two boys were squatting back to back behind the pile so they could watch both ways. By and by, the men stopped cavorting around and yelling. They started riding toward the store, then up gets one of the boys, draws a steady bead over the wood rank, and drops one of them out of his saddle. All the men jumped off of their horses and grabbed the hurt one and started to carry him to the store, and that minute the two boys started on the run. They got halfway to the tree I was in before the men noticed. Then the men see them and jumped on their horses and took out after them. They gained on the boys, but it didn't do no good. The boys had too good a start. They got to the woodpile that was in front of my tree and slipped in behind it, and so they had the bulge on the men again. One of the boys was Buck. Buck and the other was a slim young chap about 19 years old. The men ripped around a while and then rode away. As soon as they was out of sight, I sung out to Buck and told him. He didn't know what to make of my voice coming out of the tree at first. He was awful surprised. He told me to watch out sharp and let him know when the men come in sight again. Said they was up to some devilment or other. Wouldn't be gone long. I wished I was out of that tree, but I das not come down. Buck began to cry and rip and loud that him and his cousin Joe, that was the other young chap, would make up for this day yet. He said his father and his two brothers was killed and two or three of the enemy. He said the Shepherdsons laid for them in ambush. Buck said his father and brothers ought to have waited for their relations. The Shepherdsons was too strong for them. I asked him what was become of young Harney and Miss Sophia. He said they'd got across the river and was safe. I was glad of that, but the way Buck did take on because he didn't manage to kill Harney that day he shot at him, I ain't ever heard anything like it. All of a sudden, bang, bang, bang. Those three or four guns, the men had slipped around through the woods and come in from behind without their horses. The boys jumped for the river, both of them hurt, and as they swam down the current, the men run along the bank shooting at them and singing out, kill them, kill them. It made me so sick I almost fell out of the tree. I ain't going to tell all that happened. It would make me sick again if I was to do that. I wished I hadn't ever come ashore that night to see such things. I ain't ever going to get shut of them. Lots of times I dream about them. I stayed in the tree till it begun to get dark, afraid to come down. Sometimes I heard guns away off in the woods, and twice I seen little gangs of men gallop past the lock store with guns. So I reckoned the trouble was still a going on. I was mighty downhearted, so I made up my mind I wouldn't ever go near that house again because I reckoned I was to blame somehow. I judged that that piece of paper meant that Miss Sophia was to meet Harney somewhere at half past two and run off and I judged I ought to told her father about that paper and the curious way she acted, and then maybe he would have locked her up and this awful mess wouldn't ever happen. When I got down out of the tree, I crept along the riverbank a piece and found the two bodies laying in the edge of the water and tugged at them till I got them ashore. Then I covered up their faces and got away as quick as I could. I cried a little when I was covering up Buck's face, He was mighty good to me. It was just dark now. I never went near the house, but struck through the woods and made for the swamp. Jim Warren on his island, so I tamped off in a hurry for the creek and crowded through the willows, red hot to jump aboard and get out of that awful country. The raft was gone. My soul's, but I was scared. I couldn't get my breath for most a minute. Then I raised a yell. A voice not 25 foot from me says... Good land! Is that you, honey? Don't make no noise. It was Jim's voice. Nothing ever sounded so good before. I run along the bank of peace and got aboard. And Jim, he grabbed me and he hugged me. He was so glad to see me. He says, Lord bless your child. I was right down shore. You're dead again. Jack's been here. He say he reckon you's been shot in case you didn't come home no more. So I just this minute is starting to raft down toward the mouth of the creek so as to be all ready for to shove out and leave as soon as Jack comes again and tells me for certain you is dead. Lawsy, I's mighty glad to get you back again, honey. I says, all right, that's mighty good they won't find me and they'll think i've been killed and floated down the river there's something up there that'll help them think so so don't you lose no time jim but just shove off for the big water as fast as ever you can i never felt easy till the raft was two mile below there and out in the middle of the mississippi then we hung up our signal lantern and judged that we was free and safe once more I hadn't had a bite to eat since yesterday, so Jim, he got out some corn dodgers and buttermilk and pork and cabbages and greens. There ain't nothing in the world so good when it's cooked right. And whilst I eat my supper, we talked and had a good time. I was powerful glad to get away from the feuds, and so was Jim to get away from the swamp. We said, there weren't no home like a raft after all. Other places do seem so cramped up and smothery. But a raft don't you feel mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft okay so that's chapter 18. so it gives a it's a very rich chapter there's a lot to talk about and so where would you like to start matt
0: well i think there's two ways that i would come at this chapter that i sort of do come at this chapter at least in terms of close reading The first is its kind of rich intertextuality that there are a number of allusions being made here, most obviously to the Hatfields and McCoys and to the Romeo and Juliet plotline, but I think more comprehensively to a kind of tradition of American romanticism or perhaps more accurately of southern romanticism founded on an anglophile tradition you know and a turn to the to the beginning of the chapter to get at that okay yeah and the the other thing that i think we we might want to sort of track back to is what I would call a kind of interpretive gap, a kind of Assyrian gap in the the latter stages of the chapter that Twain draws our attention to a change in Huck's storytelling. And Huck says explicitly, I don't want to talk about these things. There's certain things I'm not going to talk about. And I'm going to start telling this story a mo- lot more quickly. Right. Right. And although it's pretty clear, at least you know, the basic thing that he doesn't want to describe is the death of Buck, right. Right. there's nonetheless this gesture that Twain is making through Huck's changing of his own storytelling mode that w- I think we have to grapple with right? How, what what are the the implications of that change? Okay. Yeah. Good. But to start at the beginning, I think we start with Colonel Grangerford mm-hmm. and a very long, very elaborate description of him that then transitions into a characterization of the rest of his family and the rituals around their house. All of which, for me, is Twain signaling to us that we have entered a kind of fantasy of sort of pl- plantation romanticism okay right? yeah the, the twain will talk about the affectation of the title kernel mm-hmm. of the kind of militaristic dress and mm-hmm. formality and ritual that we get here they kind of codes yeah, the, the of ritual honor. I mean, just uh, just yeah you know, to pick up on what you're yeah. saying
1: and, and some things that you know strike stick out to me the way in which the ritual kind of reinforces the patriarchal authority Mm -hmm. of the colonel. Yes. You know. Absolutely. Everybody's got their place, but Mm -hmm. he's at the head and Mm -hmm. everybody, you know. Yeah. All that stuff that people don't sit down until. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah,
0: that they're maintaining, literally, a kind of aristocratic tradition. And that word, aristocracy, is used at least twice to describe this plantation system, which is, of course, a kind of affectation that was associated with antebellum plantation culture, this sort of aspiration to reform a kind of feudal system. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then you
1: get the, the sort of that strong
0: juxtaposition
1: of that
0: with the feud. Yes, right. I mean, yeah. just yeah. Like,
1: well, wait. How do these things go together, right? Yeah. I mean,
0: <laughs> right. And, There's two kinds of feudalism here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for me, you know, the the larger argument that I make or I want to make about this chapter is that this is the moment where Twain signals a death of romanticism. Right? Oh, okay. And in order to do that, right, the the moment of that death is the massacre that takes place while Huck's up in the tree. But in order to get there, we really have to dwell in the space of a plantation romance. We have to meet a character like Colonel Granger. We have to see him exercise that, as you said, that patriarchal authority. We have to understand the role that these women, beautiful, virtuous damsels, are playing within this, as well as the role that the younger men are being forced to play within this. And the way in which they have acclimated themselves, even Buck, likely in his early teens or younger, right. who is prepared to die, right? Has, right? has taken for granted almost inevitability that this feud will end in my death and the death of everybody in my family. And he talks about this nonchalantly. Mm -hmm. And and so the codes of honor, of chivalry, the ways in which this whole family is embracing some very macabre version of the kind of Walter Scott romanticism that Twain blames for the Civil War, we have to see that in practice Mm -hmm. in order to then experience what Huck experiences up in the tree.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. So that's one of the framing things. And then the other, you want to go back to some of the intertextuality or... Yeah. Know, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. It's always worthwhile to, to turn with Twain and, and with many 19th century American writers is the appearance of text within the text right right? and we have the you know the bible being fetched by huck Mm -hmm. which is then going to be the way that he blames himself for his participation in this massacre and his reading of the slip of paper that he doesn't fully understand but he knows there's something about it that doesn't strike him quite right right and then, and maybe just as importantly, disguising his own ability to read. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something that Huck does throughout the novel, but I think is particularly important on this occasion, that he recognizes the power that comes with literacy. Yeah. And sometimes that it's important, as it would be for an enslaved person, to withhold mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the accomplishment of that power, right? That uh, on this occasion for him to admit his literacy is not going to work to his advantage. Right, right. Um, he recognizes it, yeah. puts him in some awkward or even maybe even perilous kind of position. Yeah. So he denies it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. that then sort of raises this question about literacy about the bible certainly Mm -hmm. about books and narratives more generally what is the effect that a literary tradition has had upon this set of circumstances that lead to tragedy, right? They, right, right. You know, we, we know it's it's easy for me to say, having read lots of Twain. We know that Twain blames Walter Scott, yeah, right, right. <laughs> for the Civil War, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. and I think certainly blames Walter Scott for creating this dynamic violence and patriarchy within the plantation right. system.
1: It's also something I think about Twain's relation to Christianity. That's mm-hmm. coming up here, right? The, yeah. it's the Bible. It's yeah, the, it's the Sunday, right? Yeah. And and what happened to the Sunday? What's the what's the sermon about? Yes, Brotherly Love and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? And yet what what's gonna happen, right? And,
0: and how can yeah. these things be reconciled, right? Yeah. How can we have this sort of code of chivalry that is based upon violence and hatred yeah. Yeah. and kind of eye for eye kind of mentality being sustained? Directly alongside the very Protestant sermons yeah, right? yeah, about yeah. good works and faith, how how can those things talk about reconciled? gaps? I mean, this is yeah. sort
1: of gaps in the <laughs> in the culture, right? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. And I think it's it's absolutely important that he fetches the Bible that we have as a kind of intermission in this narrative the trip to church, which he finds incredibly tedious, as he always does describing any kind of religious situation. But that tedium is all the more, it was one of the roughest Sundays I had run across yet. (laughs) It's all the more difficult because it just doesn't fit within everything else he's seeing about this family and about this culture. It's interesting
1: that he Twain doesn't have him directly articulate that right. right i mean he he describes it and so on it doesn't take a lot for us as readers to to put together this mm-hmm. discrepancy and so and yeah. he doesn't sort of doesn't need huck to do it he's just going to have yeah. huck describe it and describe
0: his own reactions right. huck right? huck can do a very huck thing which is the kind of ah shucks yeah. i don't get this yeah. it, it's Clearly a failure on my part. I'm, right. you know, too stupid or too immoral yeah, or, you know, yeah. or, or too lowborn yeah, to understand. Right, right. I'm not the qualivator. Right? Yes. Yeah. Right, right. Right. And he takes for granted. I think that's a really important. And one of the questions I would ask is we have the Widow Douglas and Pap and this allusion to the people who we have left behind yeah. in St. Petersburg coming back in to frame Huck's characterization of Colonel Grangerford, right right? that what he knows about Colonel Grangerford, at least in part, before he starts living there, is vicarious through the fame this person has, more than just a local fame, at least a regional fame, and that he's sort of depending upon these people who he's broken away from. He's sort of in the process, certainly, of PAP, with PAP, of sort of distrusting Pap's worldview. Yeah. And even with some of the other characters from St. Petersburg, Douglas and Watson and Thatcher, and maybe eventually Sawyer, right? He's mm-hmm. starting to question their worldviews as well. Yeah. And yet we have them called back here to establish the fame of the Grangerford family and also to show Hawk depending upon the values of a community. Right, right. In order to understand what's important, what's moral, what good behavior is. And he takes for granted, even though it's Pap that's saying it, even Pap said that Colonel Grangerford was the first aristocracy of our town, he's accepting that account, even though he has every reason by this point to discount everything that Pat says
1: yeah right 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 and I think that's you know it's one of the things that recurs in the novel the way in which Huck sort of accepts all all this he's, he's being socialized into it and he mm-hmm. thinks that okay this is I should be thinking this because the, my mm-hmm. elders are and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff and at the same time there's part of him that, Sort of intuitively yeah. sees through it and can yeah. accept it. And, you know, yeah. sort of we see it again and again. Yeah. yeah. And
0: like you said, that cycle happens over and over again. And usually it's associated with going on to the river with Jim and then coming off of the river and yeah. reintegrating into some form of white society. That when he gets back on the river, he starts feeling thankful for being away from civilization. Yeah. And, Starts to question some of the values that are being civilized into him. Right. But then when he finds himself back on land with the various families along the riverbank, he very rapidly reintegrates, readapts. And as you pointed out when we were talking about this last night, he very easily forgets Jim, right? Yeah. Until Jim reappears later in the chapter, more than halfway through the chapter, we have no indication that Huck has been thinking about Jim at all right worrying about him right. wondering yeah. what happened to him looking yeah. for him yeah. Yeah. yeah okay
1: good you want to talk a little bit about Huck up in the tree and mm-hmm. then, then maybe we'll switch and yeah. So on, but yeah so
0: yeah so i think one of the things that we have happen at the beginning of the chapter is we, we have this kind of laborious narration of the rituals of living at the house. Right. And there is an extent to which Huck almost becomes a third-person omniscient narrator setting the stage of the Grangerford plantation. And time really telescopes out and it becomes very unclear how long he's right. been here right? right that he's able to describe Colonel Grangerford's moods on a timeline of weeks yeah right and so there is this suggestion that he's dwelling with this family for an extended period of time or at least he has so integrated himself into the family that he understands their dynamics as a member of the family would right yeah. and, And I think we have a a kind of reversion of that omniscience when we get to the tree. That one way of thinking about perspective is the extent to which we kind of get above the action. And Huck gets down into the action in the middle of the chapter when he's the one who delivers the note. But then he gets back out of it and is viewing it from above in a way that is mainly non-participatory, except for the moment when he yells out yeah, to Buck right. and Buck doesn't know where that voice is coming from. It's almost a voice of God. It's almost <laughs> a kind of omniscient voice. Right? <laughs> yeah. And and so the, the tree becomes Huck's position of authority okay. from which we can see him change from being the kind of very humble, very self-doubting narrator that he is elsewhere in the chapter. He still feels guilt, certainly, during that section, but he, he also becomes our sort of figure of moral authority, right? He is seeing everything that's happening, and he is also creating a kind of emotional palette through which we can understand those events, not in terms of the honor codes of the feud, but in terms of his emotional response to actual violence and murder and death and that you know for me that that's the moment right where where we see twain give us this is the end of romanticism right? the, and i use that end in multiple ways right the both yeah. w- we Absolutely. have to bring the romantic tradition to okay. a conclusion but also because, because this, this is, is where right. it leads
1: exactly
0: right? yeah. Um, yeah. yeah this is the this is the end product of it yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, good. Anything else that you wanted to be sure we touched on before we turn it over to? Well, yeah. let's.
0: I know one of the things that you wanted to talk about that I wanted to ask you about was how do we interpret that within this chapter, there would be one way to create a chapter break here where Huck pulls the bodies out of the river and then we have a chapter break and we see him reuniting with Jim. Mm-hmm. And those are made into two distinct episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but Twain doesn't do that. Uh, he, he fuses them into a single chapter. He, may, he makes it a continuous linear, linear narrative here. And I think that's an interesting choice. And it begs to question, what is the relationship between this Grangerfords and Shepherdson's feud and how Huck experiences it. And then the return and reunion with Jim and their... Going back to the river, and one of the most quoted lines having to do with the naturalist beauty of the river is at the very end, right? You feel Mm -hmm. mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft, right? That's a a line from Huckleberry Finn that kind of gets quoted a lot. And that closes this chapter that is mainly about horror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the fact that Twain puts those things yeah. in conjunction with one another, I think is one of the things I wanted to talk about. And it sounds as though you have an interpretation of like how Jim fits into this. Yeah.
1: Narrative. Yeah. So the a couple of things. So maybe before I get into that, example, yeah. I could use that as a way to start talking a little bit about some of the, the kind of close reading mm-hmm. I would be interested yeah. in doing. And, yeah, you know, I think, It's very complementary to what you're doing Mm -hmm. and not opposed at all. But uh, I would be thinking about two kind of aspects of what I would think of as resources for storytelling, Mm -hmm. you know, narrative resources. So one is segmentivity, right? Mm -hmm. So where do we make the breaks? Mm -hmm. And the other is space, Mm -hmm. right? And so the fact that he uses the single segment of this chapter for... These spatial juxtapositions—he's mm-hmm. conveying something about his interest in this comparison contrast between
0: life on the shore and mm-hmm. uh, life on the raft with Jim. And just to guess, re- reiterate, sort of, the, there's there's three key spatial juxtapositions, right? There's there's the plantation, yeah. There's the woodpile and the yeah. tree. And then there's the raft,
1: right? Right. Yeah. right. And then those are the church. I mean, yeah, have, the you know, church. So yeah, and absolutely. There's, yeah. And there's the swamp, right, yeah. where Jim <laughs> is, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think, which is more of a gap,
0: right? right, where we don't, we, yeah. we don't, we we get some very vague indications of what what Jim's life has been like. Right,
1: right. But I think there, too, it's also like the implication of the difference between Mm -hmm. life in the plantation house Mm -hmm. and life in the swamp and, Mm -hmm. you know, out with the water moccasins. It's also kind of like Huck doesn't doesn't comment on that. You know, Twain doesn't do a lot to call attention to that. Although maybe, again, you'd say, all right, he's expecting us to make that comparison and so on. But I do think about segmentivity in space and the the ways in which Twain's kind of juxtapositions of the spaces invites uh, his audience to make some interpretive judgments about how they relate to each other. And sort of more generally then, I think I would go through other kinds of how Twain's handling narrative resources, Huck being one, the way Huck's narration, some of the the dialogue, right? It's really striking that Twin turns to dialogue to disclose to his audience all the key details of the feud, right? Mm -hmm. It's Buck Gets gets yeah. to tell that story, right? He doesn't have Huck narrate it, right? Mm-hmm. So we so or we, Colonel Grangerford, right? Which would be another yeah, logic exactly, yeah. exactly. So we have the participant in it, and the the one who's going to carry it on if it's mm-hmm. to carry on, and then we have this disclosure of he doesn't know anything about it. It's just this is a given in my life, and mm-hmm. Huck asks all these questions and so on. But also the fact that Buck gives the testimony when Huck says, oh, but you know, they're a bunch of cowards, right? And you might think that that's going to be the attitude of the Granger for the Shepherds. And Buck says, no, 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 you know? And you get this this whole this sense of qualities that are potentially valuable <laughs> and productive, but being used in the service of violence ultimately, right? Mm-hmm. And so we could go into some of those details, but I guess I would say what I like so much about what you're doing is that you are interested in these kinds of things, too, but you frame them with these bigger sort of historical and mm. literary traditions and, and things like that, right? And yeah. Then you're thinking about yeah. Walter Scott and mm-hmm. and Join's attitude to romanticism in general and yeah. the, the tradition of, of that and so yeah. on. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the sort of historicist in me is always trying to, if not ask that question first, certainly make that part of the interpretation, that that as soon as we ask some sort of formal question, Mm -hmm. can we tie it to a biographical or historical phenomenon that might explain this set of choices, or at least reflect some of the the sets of choices? And one of the moments that we might talk about is that there's actually sort of two, and I hadn't really thought about this until we were reading it this time. There's two reunions here, right? There's the first reconnection where Jack brings Huck to Jim and the person who's most excited amongst the two of them is is, Jim is excited to see Huck. Yeah, right. right. He's not surprised, but he's excited. And we do have a moment of humanity from Huck where he says, why didn't you tell my Jack yeah. to fetch me here sooner, Jim? And I think it's the only time in the narrative we, where he refers to the slave as Jack as opposed to mm-hmm. using the N-word. Yeah, right? yeah. But other than that, we have a kind of unequal loyalty here Ooh. where Jim is excited to see Huck. Is pursuing a reconnection with him. And Huck is not cold exactly, but is not treating Jim with that same level Mm. of loyalty and intimacy. But then, then, the second one, after we go to the tree and we have the massacre, then things turn dramatically, right? Where he hears Jim's voice and he says, Jim's voice, nothing sounded so good before. I run along the bank of peace and got aboard, and Jim grabbed me and hugged me and was so glad to see me. And it's clear that Huck feels that same way, Right, right? that he couldn't be happier to be back with Jim, and that the world that they create on the raft in these final couple of paragraphs You know, feels utopian to him (laughs) in the aftermath of what he's seen amongst the very wealthy, very privileged (laughs) Grangerford plantation. Right. He is only too happy to leave it behind and go back to living with, you know, a fugitive enslaved man. In yeah. relative poverty, yeah, yeah, uh, and I mean, itinerancy, I mean, uh, right, yeah.
1: right. How are we gonna, yeah, make it from day to day? Yeah, and even you know, th- this also like they bracket. <laughs> The problem they've gone past Cairo in the mm-hmm. fog, right? That doesn't yeah. matter in, in this moment, right? Because we're, we're back together and I'm free of that. I wished I'd never yeah. come ashore. And it, but
0: it, it does also suggest the kind of cruelty of this novel that is going to cycle again and again that we've been talking about. That we will see Huck in fits and starts recognize Jim's humanity, yes, right? But then Almost inevitably, he will take two steps back in ways that are sometimes overtly cruel, but are certainly unthinking. And every time he gets more intimate and friendly and amiable and familiar with Jim, the retreat is more painful, presumably for Jim. But also for us as readers, yeah, absolutely,
1: absolutely, right, right, and then you know, most painful, I think, in the evasion section, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd like to maybe just talk a little bit uh, about Huck as character narrator Mm -hmm. uh, here, because I think Twain's handling of Huck as a character narrator is just sort of brilliant, again and again and again, and. If I were teaching creative writing and I wanted to have my students learn about what you can do with a character narrator, I would start with Huck Finn, partly because what he does is shows the range of things you can do with a character narrator. So you were talking, I think, very aptly about the way in which at the beginning, it's it's like omniscient narration, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that this narration about Colonel Grangerford is coming from the 13-year-old Huckleberry Finn with his history and so on, doesn't really matter a whole lot, right? This is information that it comes in Huck's voice, absolutely, Mm -hmm. but Huck's voice also has a pretty good range, right? And so he can say aristocracy and he can...
0: And if you picked up those few paragraphs and put them down in Adventures of Tom Sawyer... In, in which we have a, an omniscient narrator. You
1: wouldn't notice. You wouldn't really.
0: notice a difference, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: right. So you got that on the one hand, and then you get another thing, I think, where it is Huck, but it's what I call restricted narration, where Huck is doing a lot of just reporting. Everything he's saying is reliable, but he's not really interpreting it, but Twain sort of allows us to interpret it. So the, mm-hmm. the interaction with Sophia is very much of that sort, where he narrates what she says and and what he does and so on, Uh and we see it. So we get that, and then we get stuff that really, you know, the fact that it's Huck and this character in this situation telling about these events matters so much, right? And it's Huck in the tree, and I'm not going to say a whole lot about all this,
0: right? And then... But he has the moral authority of a trauma, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, he does. And then there's this other thing that sort of stands out that's kind of amazing because the, the narration is really so much from Hug's perspective as the action is unfolding. And that gives a kind of intensity to it. Although we get these, you know, a little framing. I'm not going to go into all the details, that kind of thing. But at the end, he says, I ain't going to tell all, all that happened. It would make me sick again if I was to do that. Mm-hmm. I wished I had never come. So there's that kind of, okay, I'm commenting on my own narration at the time of the telling. Mm-hmm. Then he goes back into his own perspective at the time of the action. I wished I had never come ashore that night to see such things. And then he goes back. I ain't ever going to sh- get shut of them. Lots of times I dream about them, mm-hmm. and then suddenly we have this yeah. sense of the interval—what's yeah. been happening between yes. this action and the telling. Yes, right? it's just a phrase, right? It is, but yeah. it's very powerful. It's right? very
0: powerful because it's—and and it's so unusual within the narrative. Right? Exactly, there's, there's, there's exactly. very rare occasions where we have Huck remind us, other than at the very beginning, and then maybe again at the very end, that. Oh, I'm telling this story from some historical distance, right, right? Right. And I have learned some things from this. I am a different yeah. person. I might be a more mature person, at least a more aged person. <laughs> right. right. Very often, when we're actually in the process of reading the text. We don't think about that right. narrator. We think about right. Huck as the 13-year-old or 12-year-old right, or right, whatever right. he is. It's, it's perspective who's, the perspective of time yeah, of the action. Just thick in it. But yeah, you're right. When, it's, when he says, I'm never going to get clear of it, yeah. I sometimes I dream about it. When we have this recognition that this is a traumatic incident and it's not just that we can forecast into the future that it's going to cause him trauma it's that the person who's telling us the story is already experiencing the residue of that trauma
1: yeah right right and it's you know and what's so great about it with i think from sort of the craft perspective is that it just Seems natural, I mean, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, Twain makes it, okay, yeah, th- this kind of teller would say this kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean,
0: he would start yeah. to get uncomfortable as he moved towards his climax, right? That yeah. Huck is this really wonderful, vivid, detailed storyteller, but that as he moved towards what is going to be the climax of the action, he kind of tenses up mm-hmm. and unlike the romantic storyteller which would give us this in gruesome detail yeah, yeah. W- with all the implications it has on you know the larger relationships between the characters and within the society and the sort of just deserts, the cost-benefit analysis of the moral code right huck's not going to be able to do any of that right? yeah, he, right. he's just going to experience the fright mm-hmm. the violence and then that's what we experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, so maybe we should move toward the end, but yeah. maybe talk just a little a bit about how we might see Chapter 18 in relationship to the mm-hmm. larger narrative. Yeah.
0: So for me, and we talked about this a little bit last night, I think the reason why this is so important for both Huckleberry Finn and then for the larger understanding of Mark Twain's sort of literary tradition and what he is throwing his shoulder into Mm -hmm. with a book like Huckleberry Finn is that as he has just written about in life on the Mississippi, he lays a lot of the blame for the civil war at the foot of specifically, he says, Walter Scott, but it's obviously more generally a kind of romantic cultural tradition that was pervasive in the south and which gave dignity to the system of enslavement Mm -hmm. and gave righteousness to slaveholders in particular to plantations and i think one of the the aims of this book is to kill that off right Uh, is to uh, to make a mockery of that kind of aspiration to aristocratic superiority Mm -hmm. but i think in order to do it right not only do we have to see the ends that we see here in the chapter but we have to see the vulgarity of any attempt to bring back that romantic tradition and this that's how i interpret the ending right Mm -hmm. is that Mm -hmm. when we go to the phelps's farm when we have thomas sawyer reappear Mm -hmm. who is in many ways the sort of personification of romanticism, right? Uh-huh. This guy that just loves the library, yeah, loves yeah. reading books about yeah. pirates and knights, and whatever re- romantic adventure literature he can find, he's not only going to absorb it, but he's going to try to recreate Re-ac- it in it's the world.
1: Reenactments,
0: yeah. all that stuff, yeah. And after the experience of the you know, Shepherdsons or the Grangerfords, the attempt to do that Mm -hmm. the return Mm -hmm. of tom sawyer as this burlesque romantic boy figure it feels crude yeah. cruel yeah, certainly absolutely. it's cruel cool. towards jim yeah. and it, it feels as though twain is kind of parading the corpse of a romanticism <laughs> around weakened at bernie style yeah, uh, right, you know right, in the right, final right. chapters of the <laughs> novel they are cringeworthy in, yeah. in many cases yeah. as is the fact that in that cycle we've been talking about huck Goes along with it exactly. Right? Yeah. He, had, right. he has right. moments right. of regret and resistance, and yeah. but for the most part, he falls in line to being Tom Sawyer's sidekick yeah. right. and to accepting the ways in which Tom unthinkingly abuses Jim. Yeah, And, right. and that hurts yeah. as as readers. Yeah. And for me, that creates the allegory of Reconstruction. That the reason why it makes sense for Twain to write a book set 20 years before the civil war and published 20 years after the war Mm -hmm. is because the system of enslavement though perhaps superficially eliminated Mm -hmm. has not gone away right and we see even in this chapter a kind of hint of that right that the you know jurisdiction law like none of that applies here right Right, like the shepperson's and Grangerfords are not going to care about an amendment to the constitution right Mm -hmm. they murder according to a familial code right they enslave according to a familial code the the kinds of people that Huck is encountering on these riverbanks are not going to be swayed simply by the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be swayed into shirking off decades and generations of white supremacy and Southern supremacy and patriarchy just because they lost a war and were told so by their government. and, And I think that sort of reminder that the judicial, the legal, the jurisdictional, Mm -hmm. like these are ways that we might historicize the moment of civil war and emancipation and reconstruction. But there's a certain kind of limitation to that. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly what Twain sees when he returns to the South in this moment between when he starts Huckleberry Finn and when he finishes it. Is that the sharecropping system, the kind of ascendant Jim Crow system, you know, is barely better than what came before. And and he's enraged by by that. that. Um, There's just one little sort of paratextual thing that I wanted to share with you. Yeah, sure. This is something that he writes in his notebook after seeing Frederick Douglass give a speech, a speech in which Douglass talks about the emergence of the sharecropping system. And this is what Twain writes. There is not hardly a single celebrated Southern name in any of the departments of human industry, except those of war, murder, assassination, lynching, the duel, repudiation, and massacre. There is not a single Southern celebrity in the arts today, nor in science, et cetera. that you can sort of feel his rage at all that was lost Mm -hmm. in order to get to emancipation, right? He lost his career. He lost a connection to his home. Mm -hmm, He certainly lost some friends and family members, and the nation lost a lot more besides. And yet, you know, he's, he's coming to terms slowly but surely in the 1880s with the idea that we lost all that... And mm-hmm. the thing that was supposed to be gained was the end of enslavement. Yeah. And while that may have happened in name, yeah, right. in Literally, practice yes, there's so much right. so much still looks the same. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We could talk about 2024. Yeah. More. <laughs> yeah. That's- Same way, yeah, right, yeah. No, that's good. I mean, I I I like everything you're saying, but it also maybe gets at another difference in the kind of reading that Mm -hmm. we do or or drawn to, right? Which is that for me, I can't get over the cringe, right? And and part of it is you know I think the way in which my reading is attaches me so much to Huck and Mm -hmm. what he does and the kind of education he got and the sort of culmination in that. All right, then I'll go to hell, where he rejects. I mean, on the one hand, he accepts. I mean, it's so brilliant because on the one hand, he accepts his socialization into Christianity, uh, because he said, "All right, I'm going to condemn myself." But in accepting that, he's also rejecting it because the right thing to do here is, you know, tear up this letter, and so yeah. that this Watson can't come and reclaim Jim and yeah. uh, take him back. And it seems to me that this chapter, especially the end of it, is part of Twain's giving a kind of education to Huck about the limitations of Christianity and short society and aristocracy and so on, right? And so to have him so easily you know, fall back into Tom mm-hmm. Sawyer, right? Yeah. Again, I can see sort of the logic of it at the thematic level, but I can't sort of see yeah. it at the level of the unfolding action and the, the characterization of Huck and the way he's asked me to invest in in mm-hmm. that. So, again, not to say that one is better than the other, no, but just to no. point out the different kinds of... And, and I think in many movies. ways
0: you're right. And I, I sometimes feel when I'm reading this novel as though Twain's meta purpose with the novel what i think of as his sort of meta purpose is the novel is sometimes compromised by how good he is at the episodic level yeah right That mm-hmm. twain often gets i think unfairly and inaccurately characterized as a great talent and humor mm-hmm. but I think he is at least equally good at sentiment Uh, he really knows how to make us feel and when when reading Twain works I am as apt to have a tear brought to my Mm -hmm. eye Mm -hmm. as I am to laugh out loud and that is certainly true I don't think of Huckleberry Finn as really a funny book at all there Mm -hmm. there are maybe a few moments but Mm -hmm. for the most part I I don't think about it that way but it can make you cry on numerous occasions of course Mm -hmm. most famous in the all right that I'll go to the hell moment which is so rich it's so rich ideologically it's so rich intertextually and it's so rich emotionally absolutely and I do think his talent for producing those moments may actually work counter then to maybe the larger political project Mm -hmm. that he might be taking on in this novel or that I think he's taking on in the novel, which is to create a narrative that mimics the historical narrative of the failure of reconstruction.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe connect that to something else like that. He's trying to do so many things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so maybe too much. Well, and that they don't don't fully reinforce each other Mm -hmm. or or come together in a kind of fully coherent way. And and I think another way that I see that, anyway, is the way he handles Jim, Mm -hmm. right? And as you were saying before, like, okay, in chapter 18, Jim disappears, and and Huck doesn't seem to care about him, and then suddenly he's there, and it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, has he disappeared for Mm -hmm. Twain? And suddenly he's there. And I think part of what he's doing is sort of giving Primary interest of the novel to Huck and Huck's experience, but he's also making what happens to Huck so inextricably tied up to what happens to Jim, and so he kind of r- creates this problem for himself when he takes Huck to the point of, all right, then I'll go to hell. Yeah. But they're down south, and uh, you know what? Huck so so no what am power. I going to do? Right, he has yeah. no power. What do You know how yeah. am I going to do it? And then. So what does he do? Well, he brings Tom Sawyer back and he can do all this kind of thematic stuff mm-hmm. to send up of, of <laughs> Scott and the romanticism and so on. But in the course of that, again, what happens to Jim? Jim is always secondary mm-hmm. for Twain, which is not to say that, you know, you can't have a minor character or that minor characters should be equal to major characters. But there's just something about the way in which Twain uh, does these things that are convenient yeah. <laughs> for, for what he's doing with Huck. Uh, that sort of sacrifice, yeah. Jim, that troubles well, me I think a little.
0: The, yeah, the problem you hit upon that I think is, is, is genuinely a problem is that he's not always secondary, right? Yes, exactly. That we yeah, have these moments where Jim's right. voice breaks through and breaks through very powerfully, and Twain really gives him autonomy and authority right. and humanity in a way that very few black characters by white novelists in the American 19th century are getting right and certainly you know prominent white novelists and then Jin suddenly retreats it's, again uh, yeah. and becomes archetypal and becomes a magical and negros- and, fig- yeah, yeah. figure yeah. and becomes just a reflection of Huck's Moral Quandary and Tom Sawyer's play. And for Twain to give us the gym who's thinking about his family on the raft, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To give us the Jim who's worried about what's happened to Huck and is waiting for him right, at right. his own peril right, right? and is calling Huck honey and right. is right. embracing him. And the Jim who,
1: who speaks up when Huck lies to him about what happened when they get lost in the fog. Absolutely,
0: yeah, right, yeah, yeah. 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 And the Jim who's, who's debating the Solomon yeah. parable, right? Like, those are all episodes in which Jim is not a secondary character. He's yeah. a major voice In them, Havel, the second most major voice to Ha, absolutely, and that makes it all the more painful. When I I agree with you, it does seem as though Twain either forgets about him, Mm -hmm. or he forces him back into submission, yeah, into the stereotypical roles, forces him back into enslavement, even when we find out. He was no longer enslaved, yeah, and, right. and that's and that, part of the cruelty yeah, of the Tom, Tom Sawyer section. Absolutely. Right? Is right. that Tom yeah. knows? Tom, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like, Tom yeah. knows that they don't have to go through all of this right. to emancipate. Right. And in fact,
1: yeah. the only reason why Tom would do that is because he knows. Yeah. Right. I mean, geez mm-hmm. Tom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom, Tom's a real villain. <laughs> yeah. <it. laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's terrific. Well, this thanks, Matt. Pleasure. This was a pleasure. Yeah, nice thank yeah. you. This was, was a real, really enjoyable. So, uh, again, uh, thanks to Matt, and I want to thank our listeners and say we appreciate your feedback. And you can send it to us at email address projectnarrative at osu.edu or on our Facebook page or on our Twitter account, which is at PN Ohio State. I also remind you that you can find more than 20 additional episodes of the podcast at the Project Narrative website or on Apple Podcasts.
0: For more about this episode, including a bibliography, go to marktwainstudies.com backslash project narrative or theamericanvandal.substack.com.